3. Ross Island. When you lose someone you love, the grief is like being kicked in the stomach. It's shocking, overwhelming, uncontrollable. All of the possibilities have turned into finalities. All of the tomorrows have turned into yesterdays. Hopes to regrets, love to pain. There are no more adventures, only what you can remember. But the memories don't bring comfort, only more of the same. The world goes on, you have to, so you get desensitized to it. That loss slowly disappears into the white noise. Then out of the blue, something will remind you. A song, a smell, and you're right back there. Because the truth is, we never stop grieving our loss. We only forget. There is an island located on the edge of Antarctica, 2,800 miles south of Auckland, New Zealand. The climate is extremely cold and the island is huge, about 950 square miles. It has been a persistent point of interest for human exploration due to it typically being the furthest point south accessible by ship. A peninsula at its southern tip, facing the continent, is home to the modern Antarctic stations of Scott Base for New Zealand and McMurdo Station for the U.S. The island is punctuated by Twin Peaks, a dormant volcano standing 10,597 feet, and the other volcano, Earth's southernmost active volcano, which rises 12,448 feet from the ice sheets below. The namesake of the island, British explorer Captain James Ross, led an expedition to Antarctica on two ships, charting most of its shoreline for the first time. The discovery of what is now called Ross Island occurred on January 28, 1841, and was described by Joseph Dalton Hooker in his journal. Hooker was an assistant ship surgeon for the crew, but also a trained naturalist. He wrote, water and sky were as blue, or rather, more intensely blue than I have ever seen them in the tropics. And all the coast one mass of dazzling beautiful peaks of snow, which when the sun approached the horizon, reflected the most brilliant tints of golden yellow and scarlet. And to see the dark cloud of smoke, tinged with flame, rising from the volcano in a perfectly unbroken column, one side jet black the other giving back the colors of the sun, sometimes turning off at right angles by some current of wind and stretching many miles leeward. This was a sight so surpassing everything that can be imagined and so heightened by the consciousness that we had penetrated into regions far beyond what was ever deemed practicable that it really caused a feeling of awe to steal over us at the consideration of our own comparative insignificance. And at the same time, an indescribable feeling of greatness of the Creator and all the works of His hand. 
they named the two twin peaks of the island after the two ships in their expedition, HMS Terror for the dormant volcano and for the larger active volcano that Hooker described. They named it after HMS Erebus. Erebus, according to Greek mythology, being the part of the underworld through which the dead passed before reaching Hades. 60 years later, in 1901, Captain Robert Falcon Scott led the Discovery Expedition to Ross Island, establishing his base at Hut Point. This was the first time humans had ever wintered over on the island. The goal of this undertaking was to become the first humans to reach the South Pole of Earth. They tried, but they didn't make it. Six years later, another British exploration, the Nimrod Expedition, was led by Ernest Shackleton. He had a chip on his shoulder too, having been excused for supposed medical reasons after the failed attempt on the Southern Pole while he was a junior officer on Scott's expedition. This would lead to a rivalry between the men in the field of Antarctic exploration. And while preparing for their attempt on the South Pole, Shackleton's expedition built a hut on the west side of the island and unloaded their supplies from Nimrod. Eventually, the ship had to depart, leaving the explorers alone on the edge of the world. There is a documented eeriness for the men wintering on Ross Island. They didn't like being away from camp alone and often went on the ice. Some reported a feeling of being watched or that something was right behind them when nothing was there. Part of Shackleton's mission was scientific in nature, so he dispatched a team to be the first to scale that giant volcano that loomed above them. By evening on the first day, they reached 8,750 feet above sea level, but the group was already struggling. The temperature dropped to negative 34 degrees as night fell. But as one man, Marshall, waited for dinner, he wrote, Never forget sunset. Sound freezing over with wonderful opal tints on open sea. Mountains topped with gold and the base of Erebus with glaciers, a sea of gold and purple. Sun dipped, whole scene changed cold purple. Temp falls rapidly. When they awoke to make their ascent, the party saw another wonder. They found themselves above the cloud layer, which acted as a giant screen on which the shadow of the volcano was projected, like a vast magic lantern. And all within the shadow of Erebus was a soft bluish gray. All without was warm, bright, and golden. After a four-hour climb, the explorers reached the top crater, 900 feet deep and a half mile wide, with a persistent lava lake below. After a continuous loud hissing sound, lasting for several minutes, wrote one of the explorers, David, there would come from below a big dull boom, and immediately afterwards, a great globular mass of steam would rush upwards to swell the volume of the snow-white cloud which ever sways over the crater. They couldn't last long in this otherworldly place. The air was thin. They used a device called a hypsometer, which measured the temperature at which water boils. With this information, they could determine altitude. 
since the temperature of boiling water drops as height increases. They concluded the altitude of Erebus to be 13,500 feet, a figure which would later be corrected by only 1,000 feet. Seventy-one years later, November 28, 1979, a Trijet McDonnell Douglas DC-1030 cruises under full thrust. This is an irregular flight. It's an unusual sightseeing tour. Passengers mingle in the galley in the aisles. A few enjoy cocktails, while others chat with their seatmates. Outside, it's daytime, bright white all around them. In a few moments, all 257 people aboard will be dead. Because of the popularity of the previous Antarctic sightseeing flights, little advertising was needed before tickets for Air New Zealand Flight 901 were sold out. An Air New Zealand brochure printed for the trip reminded passengers, don't forget your sunglasses and camera. Flight 901 left Auckland on a Wednesday at 8.21 a.m. Besides the Kiwis, there were 24 Japanese, 12 Americans, two English, and one Canadian on board. The pilots were experienced, but had never flown to Antarctica previously. The night before, the pilot, Captain Jim Collins, had spent hours carefully charting the path on his own maps to prepare for the flight. He was using his own maps because no topographical maps of the region were provided to him at the Air New Zealand briefing he'd attended for this unique voyage. Just after finishing a champagne breakfast, passengers settled in to watch the first of many feature films, The Big Ice. Other titles were 140 Days Under the World, a documentary about Ruald Amundsen, a famed Norwegian explorer who was the first person to reach the South Pole, beating Shackleton's rival Scott and his team by only weeks. At 10 a.m., the plane was near the remote Auckland Islands, an archipelago south of New Zealand. Just after noon, the DC-10 was flying near the Bellini Islands. At 1.35 p.m., the plane was scheduled to fly over McMurdo Sound, the ice-covered strait that separates Ross Island with the rest of the continent. This would begin the sightseeing portion of the tour over Antarctica. The plane would touch the northern edge of the continent, flying over the American and New Zealand bases on Ross Island before turning back north. By 2 p.m., it would have been back over Campbell Island, south of New Zealand. The plan for lunch was fruit juice and an entree of prawns and scallops, bread rolls and a choice of steak or chicken. The dessert on the menu, peach rebus. Then the plane was expected to land in Christchurch on the South Island of New Zealand after 7 p.m., refueling and dropping off passengers before the last lake back to Auckland. The trip would take 11 hours and fly more than 5,000 miles before returning to where it originated. Aboard the flight was Peter Mulgrew. He was a yachtsman and explorer, member of the 1955-58 to Overland Expedition to the South Pole. He was an avid climber, and he had scaled many peaks in his career, but suffered a pulmonary edema 
when climbing in Nepal. He ended up losing his lower legs as a result, but continued exploring and boating regardless. He was the special guest commentator for the flight, stepping in for his old friend Sir Edmund Hillary, a fellow explorer famous for being one of the first two climbers to reach the summit of Everest. Hillary had a conflicting speaking engagement in America. Mulgrew had been on a flight before this one, but as a passenger, and he was familiar with the area where they were traveling to. He told a friend that this trip appealed to people with adventure in their souls. For these adventurous souls, it was the trip of a lifetime, like Mr. Graham Ashton, a retired World War II pilot, another mountaineer, Miss Bev Price, or Nicholas Jarvis, a man who had cared for his wife diligently after she had been paralyzed, so she bought him this trip for a Christmas present. There were married couples, fathers and daughters, teenagers, retirees, widows, everyone in between. Some events which surrounded the flight, which at once seemed like good luck, would later take on the ominous tone of fate. Thomas William Heinemann won a seat by guessing the weight of an ice block at a local fair. Another passenger won tickets through a raffle organized by New Zealand Search and Rescue. The first half of the flight had been going according to plan. For the first two hours, the aircraft was plugged in to air traffic control in Auckland, switching over to McMurdo Sound Control by 11 a.m. By around four, air traffic control Auckland began to feel uneasy because they hadn't re-established contact with 901, which was due back to Christchurch by 7 p.m. Auckland called McMurdo, and through the static, they learned that they had lost contact with the flight around 2.30 p.m. Immediately, the U.S. Navy and New Zealand Air Force launched a search and rescue effort from McMurdo. However, a solar event in the area caused terrible static on all communications, making everything even more difficult. A room for distraught family members was set up at Auckland Airport as they gathered to await any news. A priest came. The plane had two hours of extra fuel, but by 9.30 p.m., everyone knew the unthinkable had happened. That's when the pain for so many began. There was sobbing, anger, denial, glimpses of absolute grief. One man sat in the corner, staring blankly into space. The search and rescue effort carried on into the night, which was feasible due to the unceasing daylight in that region during Antarctic spring. It was during an overflight of Mount Erebus, the same day the DC-10 went missing, that a US Navy Hercules aircraft spotted smoke and debris on the side of the volcano. This initiated one of the most challenging search, rescue, and recovery operations in history. The rescue teams had to face and overcome not only the extreme environmental conditions, but the reality that all passengers and crew were lost. Due to the harsh conditions and remote location, initial attempts to reach the site were challenging. A helicopter carrying crash investigators to the site decided not to go over the island because the chopper pilot saw a pearly void forming around the volcano. This so-called illusionistic phenomenon would become important later on. The grim task of recovering bodies and investigating the wreckage began. 
One investigator, Mills, stated, In disasters involving so many casualties, the primary challenge is the identification of the bodies, particularly those severely mutilated. The identification squad collaborated with pathologists, dentists, photographers to gather as much evidence as early into the investigation as possible. One man had to be identified by a single fingerprint left on a book in his hotel room. The book, Antarctica. The crash resulted in burnt debris scattered over a strip of mountainside over six and a half football fields long. The crash site was systematically divided into grids for thorough examination amidst the rapidly changing weather of the Antarctic volcano. A helicopter pad was constructed on the side of Erebus to facilitate the landing and unloading of personnel and equipment, which was an improvement over the previous method of helicopters hovering on a single ski against the steep slopes. The effort to recover the bodies of the passengers aboard Flight 901 became a 24-hour operation in the most severe conditions imaginable. While the New Zealanders rested, American investigators would work. By December 4th, Ron Chippendale, the Chief Inspector of Air Accidents for New Zealand, was in possession of both the flight recorder and the cockpit voice recorder at McMurdo Sound, and Chippendale was charged with preparing a preliminary report on the crash. Initially, four bodies were recovered from the mountain and transported to McMurdo. The base's gymnasium was temporarily transformed into a morgue. Exactly a week after the doomed flight's takeoff, the first group of bodies arrived back in Auckland, tragically concluding what was supposed to be the adventure of a lifetime. It's hard to overstate the grief that the crash caused in New Zealand. The widower of one flight attendant who was on board, married only three weeks before the crash, was found dead in his car in the garage. With 257 fatalities, this was the greatest peacetime disaster in New Zealand history. Which is why the crash set off a chain reaction and the investigation and legal proceedings would be of immense public interest. Politics would also play an important role. At the time of the crash, Air New Zealand was a state-owned enterprise and frustration over the investigation and questions as to who was liable grew. The family members of the deceased were entitled to compensation, but from whom? Chippendale's initial report was released in June 1980. He attributed the crash mainly to pilot error, notably how low 901 had been flying at the time of impact, well below the minimum altitude set by the airline. However, a second inquiry led by Judge Peter Mahan, released in April 1981, rebutted many conclusions in Chippendale's report. The findings in these investigations were astounding, and numerous insane errors occurred in the planning stages of the flight by Air New Zealand. The airline was aware of previous pilots flying well below the minimum flight limits in Antarctica, given that a sightseeing trip wouldn't be very useful at altitude. Inaccurate and erroneous maps were used for the flight, and as mentioned earlier, no full topographical maps were given to the pilots. In contrast, specially produced and glossy topographical maps were made for the passengers, leading many to speculate that the focus of Air New Zealand had been purely commercial rather than on safety. 
One of the most unbelievable revelations uncovered was the fact that a key change was made to the onboard computer at 1.40 a.m. the night before the crash. Previous sightseeing flights had flown under visual control, passing well west of Ross Island over the flat ice of McMurdo Sound. This was the flight plan presented to Captain Collins and the rest of the crew in their briefing 19 days before the flight. The nav track waypoint had been changed to pass right over the very top of Erebus, where Shackleton's team had stood seven decades prior. No one informed the pilots that the flight path had been changed. On top of this, there was only a passing mention of whiteout conditions during the pre-flight briefing. That pearly void observed by the rescue helicopter. This visual phenomenon could make a pilot think he was seen miles ahead over the ice sheet of McMurdo Sound, rather than the fact he was flying into the side of the mountain. Even the airliner's radar didn't pick up Erebus before the crash. The plane hit the mountain under full thrust. The widow of the pilot, Maria Collins, said that her husband's documents related to the crash had been stolen during a break-in at her home after the crash. She also stated her husband had a flight diary, which was confirmed to be removed at the crash site, but was never returned to her. Mahan stated, that the airline was taking an adversarial position against his inquiry. Large amounts of documents related to the crash were shredded in mass, supposedly to prevent leaks of confidential information to the press. Mahan accused the Civil Aviation Department of New Zealand to essentially being yes-men to the state-owned airline. At one point, Mahan accused the airline of an orchestrated litany of lies. Conclusions by Judge Mahan were appealed. The airline argued that it had been treated unfairly. There was finger pointing and back and forth. But 40 years later, on the anniversary of the disaster, family members and government officials gathered at Government House in Auckland for a ceremony to honor those who were lost on Flight 901. Prime Minister at the time, Jacinda Ardern, gave a speech in which she took full responsibility for the crash on behalf of the government. She said, if we accept the Royal Commission's findings on the cause of the accident, then the time has come to end the piecemeal acknowledgements. After 40 years on behalf of today's government, the time has come to apologize for the actions of an airline then in full state ownership, which ultimately caused the loss of the aircraft and the loss of those you love. This apology is wholehearted and wide reaching. We will never know your grief, but I know the time has come to say, I am sorry. Aboard 901, in the final moments on the cockpit voice recorder, there was a discussion between the pilot, Captain Collins, the guide on board, Peter Mulgrew, the first officer, Greg Casson, and the flight engineer, Gordon Brooks. There was some confusion and concern about the current conditions, the high ground in the area, and their current location relative to a rebus. They thought they could just about make out the edge of Ross Island when the ground proximity warning system activated.
In the icy shadow of Erebus, just above Scott Base, rescue workers planted a modest wooden cross after the crash, an initial tribute to the souls taken too soon on Flight 901. As the years passed, and the unforgiving Antarctic elements took their toll, the wooden cross was replaced with one of enduring steel, standing defiantly against the passage of time, echoing the undying memories of those it commemorates. For the families and friends forever scarred by that fateful day, the depth of loss remains immeasurable. But we can never forget. We learn to remember, despite the pain. This is The Island Podcast.